and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Alan, please introduce our special guest today. We are absolutely delighted uh, to have Dr. David Bauer with us uh, today. Um, David is a, a professor uh, of Biblical Studies and Dean of the Department of Biblical Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky, and a dear friend, and um, we're delighted to have you here. Thank you, Alan. I'm glad to be here. David, welcome to the podcast. We're, we are thrilled to have you here. Uh, David, you are an expert in IBS and the Book of Matthew. So we're going to talk about the Book of Matthew and the um, IBS method here today. Let's get started. Uh, first, just IBS. If you would give us a bit of a definition of that. We've heard about this a little bit before with Alan, but let's hear your, your definition. Well, inductive Bible study um, can be understood at two levels. If you understand inductive Bible study in a general way, it really has to do with coming to the biblical text with openness to whatever the biblical text is teaching over against um, imposing uh, your own presuppositions or ideas onto the text. Understood that way, a lot of people are, or at least try to be inductive. Uh, they will say, you know, I, 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 want to, I want to hear the text on its own terms. As a matter of fact, uh, the technical word for biblical study or interpretation is exegesis, which literally means to read out of the text. And this is set over against uh, what is called eisegesis, which involves reading things into the text. And virtually everybody wants to do exegesis, reading things out of the text, letting the text speak over against reading into the text. At least most people will say that. So that's inductive study of the Bible in a general way. But uh, inductive Bible study can also be understood more specifically as a movement in biblical study and interpretation that formally began at the end of the 19th century and continues on to the present. And the inductive Bible study movement arose at the end of the 19th century uh, here in the United States, primarily by two pioneers, William Rainey Harper and Wilbert W. White. William Rainey Harper graduated from college at the age of 14 earned his Ph.D. in Semitics, or Hebrew, at Yale University when he was 18. And he was also the founding president of the University of Chicago. And he was concerned that so much study of the Bible in seminaries at that time did not focus upon the biblical text itself, but upon theories with regard to sources that lie behind the text. And this came through in terms of seminary education. If you study, for example, the book of Genesis, you did not read the book of Genesis. You certainly didn't read it all the way through. Wow. No, you engaged in a deciphering of the text, uh, really almost a uh, dissecting of the text. So uh, they believe that for the most part, uh, those who wrote the Pentateuch, the five books of uh, Moses, used four sources. So they would actually go line by line and say, okay, this half a verse came from a certain source, and this other half a verse came from another source, and this kind of, that was Bible study. So 
Harper said it's very important that students also learn to, to, to read the, the Bible in terms of its present form, its final form, as it was written as a library book, 66 books, and so he engaged in this more holistic approach and his students were absolutely excited about the study of the Bible in its final form by books. Isn't that true um, in the Old Testament library series, for example, Martin Note was asked to, uh, to write a commentary on Exodus. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. as you say. Yes. Um, he dissected the text and you know I've, I've, <laughs> I've read that commentary from cover to cover and ultimately it doesn't talk about the meaning of the text at all. Um, so much so that the, mm -hmm. uh, the editors of that series, the Old Testament Library, actually had to uh, approach Brevard Childs at Yale, uh, then the Old Testament scholar there, and uh, ask him if he would write a commentary on Exodus, and they actually took Martin Note's <laughs> book off the shelf and replaced it with Brevard Childs for the very reason that, uh, that Martin Note had nothing to say. And um, Martin Note was a famous German um, theologian at the time, Old Testament scholar. Uh, but ultimately, you know, if you dissect the text, you divorce it from the meaning or the message of the of of the, the writer or redactors or whoever, you know, put it together. So it's you know substantiates I think what you're saying. Robert Charles is one of the greatest. Some would say the greatest Old Testament scholar of the 20th century. And I had the great privilege of studying. You, you did, with Alan. Him. Well, that's interesting because uh, in an earlier podcast, Alan was talking about you wouldn't read a book um, and just pull out. A sentence here, a no. you know, a chapter there, even a page of, of word. Um, why would you think you'd start that way with the Bible? You would have it, it makes no sense. Well, no, it doesn't. And Harper and White were so ahead of their time because yeah. they realized what this would do to the church. They were ahead of their time. I mean, uh, Gerhard von Rath was another one who did the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I remember in my student days, um, uh, Bob Trena give me <laughs> give me the assignment. Of um, of uh, doing a, a reflection on the book of Genesis from Gerhard von Rath's uh, theological perspective, and I remember I, I read that book and I couldn't get a a, a genuinely theological uh, perspective, and uh, I remember I went in kind of cowering to this uh, to, to Bob Trena, um, and and he said, well, what did you find out? And I, hesitatingly I said. Uh, um, I, I, I didn't see anything. <laughs> and, and he started, you know, he guffawed in laughter and said, precisely. <laughs> well, but does yeah. that mean um, that commentaries have really no value? No, no. Not, not at all. I, as a matter of fact, I was really talking about commentaries that were the kinds of things that were coming out by many scholars, mm -hmm. really one might say the most influential ones, at the end of the 19th century. But it's not consistently the kind of reading that is helpful for people who are interested in what the Bible itself is saying. So the thing about inductive study of the Bible is that it can be adapted to lay audiences, but it has a kind of rigor that it also can be uh, employed by scholars and can be studied in a very scholarly way as well. So basically, uh, inductive study of the Bible is a comprehensive, holistic approach to the study of the Bible that is intentional in allowing the Bible to speak on its own terms, leading to accurate and penetrating 
observation, interpretation, and contemporary appropriation of the text with a focus upon the theological meaning of the final form of the text, as I say, the Bible as we have it, the theological meaning of the final form of the text, which implies that there is an emphasis upon the structure of the text, as I say, the way in which passages or books are put together, the way they are arranged, and to consider how the way in which a passage or book is arranged is a key or an entree into understanding the meaning of that passage. A lay way of putting it is that you can best understand what is said if you consider how it is said. Hmm. That would be critically important to reaching the church of all nations, uh, different cultures, um, different people, people groups. Exactly. That's exactly right. So David, let me ask you, what, what turns you on to, uh, to this approach, this methodology? Of studying scripture it makes scripture meaningful that is to say it is not an end in itself it's the means to the end of hearing as clearly accurately and profoundly as possible the message of the biblical text also and it's used in other disciplines beyond uh, biblical studies is it not yes that's very that's very true in our postmodern age you have what uh, the new testament scholar raymond brown referred to as hermeneutics of advocacy, feminist interpretation, post-colonial interpretation, political interpretation. And this, we feel, is especially concerning, these methods or interpretations of advocacy, because they are manifestly non-inductive. But when, when you talk about, about this advocacy, doesn't IBS sort of naturally lead people to think that they can do that? Because it they, they start thinking that they should be able to interpret it the way that they feel. Is, can't IBS possibly lead to sort of relativism? Uh, the brief answer is no, <laughs> precisely because IBS emphasizes, and this goes back to what I said at the very beginning in terms of inductive in a general sense, it emphasizes evidence, evidence in and surrounding the text. So, in other words, interpretation or your conclusions with regard to what a passage means is based upon what you can point to in and in the text and surrounding the original production of the text. It's always a matter of going back to have evidence. If uh, Dr. Trena, whom we've been talking about, used to make the distinction between interpretation and opining, um, opining is exactly what you talked about. Well, this is what I think the text means and this kind of thing. I'm glad you brought this up, though, about, uh, about uh, hermeneutics of advocacy because actually forms of that are implicitly what is done by many lay people. Uh, I've, mm. I've been in, in uh, local church ministry and uh, I've seen this over and over again in local church Bible studies what people will immediately say is well this passage means to me right that's opining and really what that does is to reverse a process of interpretation and application so they begin with application and then assume that how that speaks to them in their immediate situation is what that passage means IBS is very resistant to that, fundamentally resistant to that. It's always a matter of beginning with observation. Okay, 
what can we observe about the text? See, this is the way detectives work. Ah. You, uh, that's why uh, uh, IBS folks uh, love Sherlock Holmes. That's the way detectives work. So, you know, you look at the evidence and then you assess the evidence and by a process of, this is kind of a fancy phrase, inferential reasoning, you draw out the implications from that. Okay, this is what we see in the text or surrounding the text. Now, how can we extrapolate meaning from that? But people who, who adopt an advocacy approach don't do that at all. Matter of fact, they have philosophical objections to, to, to that kind of operation. No. They begin with where I am, what my opinion is, and then they read the text in light of it. They try and to make it fit. In one of two ways. Either make it fit so that you read your own t ideas into the text so that rather than being an interpreter of the text, you become a ventriloquist. So the text actually is like a dummy, as it were, and you allow, and you actually speak your own ideas through the mouth of the text. That's the eisegesis? Yes. Either that happens, or what's happened more recently, and you get it from the pulpit, by the way, is what, and I heard I'm going to use a technical expression, but I'm going to explain it, approaching the text according to a certain type of hermeneutic of suspicion. And what I'm talking about here, and by the way, the people will use that phrase in different ways, but I'm using it in a specific way. A hermeneutic of suspicion in the sense that you go to the text suspecting that this text is oppressive. It represents an oppressive point of view. In other words, that the text itself, in terms of its perspective, has at least an element of evil attached to it. Hmm. You suspect that. And you, and of course, when you, when you approach the text that way, you tend to find what you're looking for. Right. And so these people will find all sorts of patriarchy, and which them is a bad thing, and oppression and injustice within the text. And so what happens then? You, when you take a text and you preach on that text, you don't preach that text as truth. You preach that text as error. Right. And you say, okay, this is what this text says, and isn't that an awful thing? We have to commit ourselves to living differently than that. That is happening in pulpits around the country every Sunday. And around the world. I mean, okay. we have that, we see that kind of thing um, in, in Africa. There's a, a reaction to colonialism. That's right. And uh, the colonial, and, and the Bible is understood as a, a book of the colonialists, and therefore, you know. Is oppressive to uh, to African regimes and so forth, um, which is terribly unfortunate. So, so the effect of what you are saying is that um, the, that these other methodologies actually run totally opposite to and contrary to. They are very much the, the inductive biblical methodology. They do, and again, I want to be fair, and it's tr I have to say and I've done quite a bit of work in all of these, particularly post-colonialism. actually wrote an art article about it. Um, that's not to say that, that these people who approach these texts from positions of advocacy may not find things in the text that are actually there. In other words, it's not, it's not to say that, that, they, that, that they're entirely void of any insight into the meaning of the text at mm -hmm. all. Uh, so there's value in everything. But 
But isn't not, the, isn't but not but not the amount of or the kind of value without serious problems that would lead me to want to do anything like that. Part of the problem is also a contextual one because you know oftentimes uh, people will justify their uh, predeterminations um, in ways that uh, they will find substantiation in, in if they take something out of context. Um, I find that frequently to be the case um, denominationally for example. Uh, but um, you know, sitting beside an evangelist, uh, f flying from Lagos to Nairobi, um, he was—he uh, came up with the most ludicrous ideas about the nature of God and what God was responsible for, and um, and, and was attempting to justify it from the most obscure passages. And um, uh, you know, he, he was claiming, for example, that God deliberately made people blind and crippled and. And I said, where are you getting this from? And, oh, he said, I'm getting that from Exodus. I said, really, Exodus? Oh, show me where that is in Exodus. And, you know, for a long time he couldn't find it. Then he came up with this most obscure passage that had got nothing to do with yeah. what he was claiming and, and completely out of context. So one of the great things about um, inductive Bible study is, is contextualization, always seeing something within the context in which yes. it finds itself. Which I find, you know, is 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 um, is, is balancing, uh, and and when you when you earlier talked about um, going to the Bible with an open mind, uh, that isn't always as easy as as it might appear, but is essential that we put us we recognize the baggage that we take and try deliberately to set it there aside. There are two things that we emphasize here. One is an inductive attitude that recognizes the inherent tendency to read into texts. And I mentioned a mo moment ago this her hermeneutic of suspicion. We in IBS also operate according to a her hermeneutic of suspicion, except for us, the, su the suspicion is not directed to the text, it's directed to ourselves. Mm. I suspect that I'm coming to the text, I'm going to be inclined to read things in that I want to see, or that, I've ass that I'm assuming is there, or that I've always heard was there. Oh, that you that want is there. Want to be there. <laughs> that will keep me from hearing this text in new ways. Yes. That, that, that don't conform to my presuppositions, but actually challenge them mm -hmm. in appropriate fashion. Uh, and so that's where the, uh, that's one thing, you know, that, so it, one thing has to do with the attitude, which includes, as I mentioned, being aware of our, trying to be aware as much as we can of our presuppositions and then exposing those presuppositions to the evidence in and surrounding the text uh -huh. with the willingness to change our minds if in fact the evidence requires it. That by the way goes back to the basic principle of intellectual honesty. Right. But then the second is... And an attempt wouldn't you say to be biblical as opposed to um, uh, adhere to a particular doctrinal yes. statement, an a priori statement. Exactly. Just to be as open as one possibly can be. So when, when yeah. you know, I mean, I was raised Methodist, became a Presbyterian minister, attended Brethren Sunday School, and, you know, I was a walking ecumenical movement. <laughs> um, you know, there's a sense in which when people ask me what, you know, what, what position do I take? Am I Reformed? Am I Armenian? I like to, I like to tell them I try desperately to be biblical. First and foremost. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and speaking of which, I'd love to get to Matthew for a little well, bit. If I could just finish yes, this please. one because I, 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 I actually don't leave people hang, hanging. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, that involves two things, attitude, but then the second is a process that facilitates that open listening to the text. That there are certain practices that uh, are more effective in bringing that hearing the text on its own terms kind of interpretation about and others that are less effective or maybe even be counterproductive in that. So one emphasis of IBS is methodological reflection trying to identify the best practices for interpretation, not simply in individually, but again, the gestalt, how, how all these are put together in such a way as to facilitate the actual hearing of the message of the text over against simply wanting to do it. This is a way to do it. So, thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about Matthew for a minute. And this is, I know this is a very big topic, so, but if you were to give us an overview, an inductive point of view, overview of the, of Matthew, what would it be? Well, in, in IBS, when we look at books as wholes, and that's usually the first thing that we do in the process, because that's the way the Bible comes to us. The Bible comes to us in the form of books. And so, if, and so, since the Bible is essentially, as I mentioned a moment, a few minutes ago, a library of books, you begin with book study, and you begin typically with getting a survey, a sense of the layout of the entire book. Mm-hmm. We refer to that as a survey of the book. And uh, we know, again, I mentioned you know, the importance of structure, how things are put together. So where are the major shifts of emphasis within the book? Where, where are the turning points? So that you move from one main phase to another main phase of the book. This is the linear development of the book. And one way in which writers communicate meaning is by arranging things. So they put certain things first, certain things second, certain things third, and and relate what's second to what's third. In other words, the layout is important for communicating sense. You, you know this from, yes. from, from, from film. So you, you could take an in, a, a passage, an individual passage of any book, and imagine, okay, if this passage, let's say this paragraph, were not here where it is, but would, would be three chapters down the road, that very same, the words would be the same, but their meaning would be different because of their positioning within the book. Right. So development, linear development. But then also what we call structural relationships. These are dynamic organizational systems. And these are really categories that most people everyday people on the street will recognize. But they often don't read with a consciousness of their presence in text, which is very important. Things like contrast. So the writer, when he puts this next to this, is he emphasizing their difference? That'd be contrast. Or is he emphasizing their similarities? That would be comparison. Well, you can see there's a great deal of difference. And so organizational systems is another way in which writers communicate sense. So it's important to observe that. And so that's what we would do as we approach the study of any book, including the Gospel of Matthew. And if you were to give a very short um, Reader's Digest paragraph on Matthew, what would it be? If you were to tell somebody, what's the overview? Well, I would... Where would you see the turning points yeah, of the relationship? In Matthew, it's, I think it's, uh, yeah, uh, uh, as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, and I tell my students this, it's important to see what's at the beginning, the middle, and the end. This is a principle that goes back to Aristotle. And so as you stand back and get a sense of the whole book, 
one of the most obvious, and I tell students, begin with obvious observation. One of the most obvious observations you can make is that this is the story about Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom to Israel. That seems to be right at the center, proclaiming the kingdom to Israel. But Jesus doesn't proclaim, is not proclaiming the kingdom to Israel at the beginning of the book. Nor is he proclaiming the kingdom to Israel at the end of the book. At the beginning of the book, you have birth, you have genealogy, birth, infancy. So where, at what point in Matthew's gospel do you, to, do you move from these preliminary, preparatory, or beginning sorts of things to preaching the gospel, to preaching the, the kingdom to Israel? And at the end of the book, you have the passion and resurrection of Jesus. So where in, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew do you have a major shift from the proclaiming of the kingdom to Israel to passion and resurrection? Those would be your major shifts. Hmm. Well, so happens that Matthew's Gospel gives you a key to that in terms of a repeated statement. At 417, we read, and by the way, prior to 417, Jesus has not ministered at all. He begins to do ministerial work only at 417. And at 417, we read, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hmm. Okay, so that seems to be that shift. Then you go to, okay, where, where's the shift from the proclamation of the kingdom to Israel to passion resurrection? Well, you might think chapter 26, because that's where you have the passion narrative starting. But actually, the emphasis upon passion and resurrection begins well before 26.1. A, a, a sensitive reading, overview of the text suggests that, that actually that emphasis begins to be an emphasis at 16.21. From 16.21 on, you have, you have a kind of emphasis on passion and resurrection even prior to the passion and resurrection events that you did not have previously. And lo and behold, 1621 reads, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So that Matthew himself, through the repeated formulas, at 417 and 1621, clues in the reader as to where the major shift come. Notice the parallelism. From that time Jesus began to preach, and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Wow. So the writer, in fact, is telling you where the major turning points are. I believe so. That's right. That's, that's a great insight. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. The inductive method is uh, really interesting, and I know we've only just touched the surface here, and, uh, and applying it uh, around the world, I think, is what's most intriguing to all of us mm -hmm. uh, as we serve. Uh, the word is out. Alan, I'm going to let you have the last word <laughs> just to talk a little bit about um, the word is out and the things that we're looking to do with the inductive Bible study around the world well let me say again you know how delighted it has been to have you, you. Uh, on this podcast david um i love your insights and uh you know i've listened to some of your students who think you're the you're just the most wonderful things in sliced bread and <laughs> uh and and you know just the way um you, you you know i was i kept deflecting uh kip's question to you with matthew i had i had heard your students make the same 
activations and so I, I thought what an insight that is and it was right for you to kind of uh, bring that to uh, into focus. Um, inductive Bible study is is a fascinating uh, aspect of uh, approaching scripture. Um, it obviously has transformed your whole approach and, and, mm -hmm. and certainly for mine too. Uh, Bob Trainer, to whom we've referred throughout this podcast who passed away in 2010. 2010 mm -hmm. basically has been a huge influence on our lives. I, mm -hmm. I've often said that when I went to seminary I went to intensify knowledge and uh, not to be transformed and Bob Trainer, in his inductive study approach to scripture totally turned my world upside down. And uh, I've never been able to look at scripture ever since then the same way. So this inductive uh, approach is uh, what we are propagating and um, teaching around the world, currently in some uh, 12 nations, and hopefully more, attempting to set up centers for biblical understanding uh, in various countries of the world so that others will benefit from the insights that, uh, that come from allowing the scripture to speak to us mm -hmm. rather than us speaking to exactly. the scripture. Yeah. So thank you so much for being part of this. Thank, thank you, you for for being a really good friend as well. Thank, and, thank, uh, thank you for this you. opportunity. Yeah. Yes, thank you Dr. David Bauer and Dr. Alan Meenan for a fascinating discussion. Revelatory for sure. Uh, you've been listening to The Word is Out, a podcast on a mission featuring Dr. Alan Meenan. If you would like to know more about The Word is Out, visit us online at www.thewordisout.com. You can also keep up to date through our Facebook page. We'll be back with another podcast soon.